So we we gave ourselves a name. We called ourselves Epic Research Group because, you know, no no um, egos there whatsoever. That's beautiful. Well, it was actually supposed to be the Epidemiology Collaboration, but we ended up calling ourselves Epic. Epic. You know, we had a few drinks and decided that that was going to be the name because we couldn't come up with anything else. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Hamid Siddiqui and I'm here with Alex Ray. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Kate McBride, who is an epidemiologist and she's been looking at minority communities and um, their ability to access certain healthcare uh, stuff. Hope you enjoy the episode. Yay. So basically, my research is really focused on trying to I like looking at, so I look at whole populations. So mm. I'm a population-based researcher and my specialty is epidemiology. So I look at sort of rates of disease and cause of disease. But at the moment, I'm really focusing on health access and in marginalised and disadvantaged populations mm. because I'm really interested in cancer screening like I've always been interested in cancer screening. So for my PhD, I looked at cancer screening in um, really high-risk individuals who've got genetic mutations that mm. predispose them to cancer from a really early age. And so that really got me interested in thinking about some people can't always get the care that they need to help them manage like their cancer risk, for example. And so... What, since my PhD, I've moved on to looking at the population of Greater Western Sydney because there's lots of different subpopulations in Greater Western Sydney who don't really get the access to healthcare that they need. Mm. And there's quite a few different reasons for that. It might be because they're from a culturally and linguistically diverse background or there might be other issues around them being maybe really overweight and they don't like getting healthcare. Mm. So my research is in two areas at the moment. The first one is looking at really overweight individuals mm -hmm. and seeing how little they access cancer screening and the other section is looking at culturally and linguistically diverse communities in greater western sydney seeing what the barriers are to them actually ac accessing cancer screening so most of my research sort of filters down into those two areas at the moment okay um interesting so your phd was looking at cancer screening as well um yeah Let's go back to the beginning of, uh, I suppose, your journey, and then we'll come back to your mm. research. Um, I often ask this 
I've put this to many scientists, you know, what what got them on the path of science? I mean, you could have gone a million different other ways. I did, <laughs> before. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Tell me about it. So, a long time ago, I did an undergraduate in anthropology. Oh. Uh, in, back in Manchester in the early 90s. And um, that didn't particularly inspire me, which is weird because I'm really into studying human populations. But um, I actually ended up going on a completely different track and working in private business for the next 10 years once I left university. So I actually ended up being a, a regional director for a really large restaurant chain in the UK. Wow. Um, and then I moved over to Australia and did the same thing over here with a big um, Kennard's company over here. Kellogg's company. Kennard's. Kennard's. Kennard's self-storage. So I worked as a regional director for them. Okay. So basically I was always in operations and senior management. But then when I had my second child, I figured that I didn't really want to be in private business. And I'd become sick of just managing budgets and trying to manage people. So once I'd had um, Finn, I actually started working part-time for the Department of Planning doing interviewing for them because, uh, you know, I just needed a part-time job. And that actually led to me getting a research interviewing job at Westmead Hospital, um, just based on the experience that I'd had. And that really, that was on a genetic epidemiology project, and that really, you know, got my interest up. And actually, maybe instead of lining private businesses' pockets, I'd actually really like to do something to help others. So that project was um, looking at families who are really high risk of melanoma, Mm. looking at their genetic risk and trying to... Um, establish links between genetic mutations and the development of melanoma. So from there, I actually decided to go and do a master of public health. Mm. And then that just somehow I fell into a PhD. <laughs> so I think it was a conscious decision, but I just really felt at this stage in my life, I wanted to do something to help other people right. rather than helping private business, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I kind of figured when my kids were growing up, I yeah. might as well study because I didn't really want to work full time. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So the, the birth of your child was the impetus for you actually ch- getting out of business and into, into research. Yeah, because I used to work really long hours and I traveled all over Australia. So it wasn't really practicable when I had young children, but also it just maybe really consider I guess the world a little bit differently because I don't know whether you have children but you definitely change your perspective of the world when you have children and it probably stopped me being so selfish and started thinking about other people if that makes sense yeah yeah I could imagine I mean Alex has got two kids Mm. Alex who I do the podcast with and and he's mentioned that before that you know, when when you don't have kids, you, you can be selfish. You can be self-indulgent, focus on what you need to do in your mm-hmm. career and so on and so forth. But as soon as you have kids, it's like your priorities just shift completely. All of a sudden, you're no longer the middle of in the middle of the universe. It's this child, and you have to do everything to take care of this child. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it, it uh, that was a really big shift for me because I'd always been really career focused, and I'd work you know really long hours and very ambitious. So all of a sudden, I actually became a stay-at-home mum for about two years, which was kind of weird. But I did end up running playgroup and that sort of stuff because (laughs) you have to do something. something, But um, yeah, massive refocus. And it's been really good, actually, because it changed my whole perspective on their education things as well. And I think I've been a really good example to them and to others that you can actually have children. You can have a life, but you can still, you know, study and work hard and, and still come out on top hopefully yeah yeah Mm. the balance is critical isn't it it is and it's pretty hard you have to work hard long hours like I spend a lot of hours working the evenings 
and at weekends, but it's been worth it. Yeah, yeah, that's something I'm struggling with now. I mean, I'm, I'm I shouldn't say I'm fortunate that I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, you will eventually. But no, it's hard doing stuff when you've got children. It's so yeah. hard, yeah. I mean, I can, I can, like, for most of my masters and my undergrad, um, I was, I spent every weekend pretty much at uni, mm. just because I was. I think I'm similar to you. I, I, I'm, I'm the most happiest when I'm busy and mm-hmm. I'm moving forward. Yeah. You know, and when I, and, and I realized at the end of my, when I finished that thesis, I realized I couldn't relax when I, when I got home. I'm like, That's right. Like, I feel guilty for just sitting here mm. watching a TV show. So we probably share that. And, and, and I recognize that that's probably an issue for me because as I progress into the next stage of my life, mm. I need to kind of pull that back and make sure I dedicate enough time to other things that are important. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the challenges and probably failed a little bit at this when I was doing my PhD because I worked part-time, I taught, I was a research assistant, I had two young children, got divorced, moved house a couple of times and it was just really full-on and I probably put too much added stress stress and pressure on myself and I'm really concerned now with my own PhD students. You know, I really tell them you've got to have some downtime and, you know, if things don't get done this week, then they'll get done next week and, and that's really, really important to just look after your own health and well-being sort of thing and I'm really trying to do that a lot more now yeah. and have a bit more balance that's awesome mm. yeah um okay so that master's you were trying to find links between um or was that the project that you so, worked prior to that Sorry. yeah so during pr- prior to my master's I started working on the project a genetic epidemiology project mm-hmm. which is looking at um genetic mutations and how they link to melanoma risk and then my master's actually a master in public health okay mm. could you just uh, tell us what like what that entails, a, a master's in public health? It's actually probably an entry degree into health research. So you can take different tracks. I did mine at Sydney University. And it's really about learning methods to conduct health research. So I did a lot of epidemiology, which is really um, the sort of backbone of public health research, mm-hmm. and lots of biostatistics, because we need that in research too. But you can also... Um, I also study things like non-communicable diseases and vaccine-preventable diseases. So it gives you a really nice, broad basis on which to, you know, to move forward if you're doing a PhD. And you get lots of health professionals like nurses and doctors, etc., who'll do a mass of public health because you kind of need that background if you want to go into health research. I see. Mm. Um, hmm, interesting. So this this was a master's by coursework and not so much by research, right? I actually did honours. Um, okay. So I did two years part time in coursework than I did a year on as at the Children's Hospital at Westmead right. where I looked at um, HPV vaccination and, and effectively implementing it in school-based setting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a really interesting <laughs> a project. This is what I always get. I'm like, yeah, let's go back to you. Yeah, like. that's all. It's a while ago now. It's 2011, but it was a fun year. It was just really interesting because I work with adolescent girls. And um, so basically there was two parts. So I actually developed... For my honours project, I developed the questionnaire to try and um, assess effectiveness of this intervention where we were going to schools and trying to improve vaccination rates. But it was really challenging because just trying to get adolescent girls to take part, so it's probably the hardest research I've ever done. And then just from the ethical perspective as well, of trying to get everything through ethics. So it was kind of fun. It was really great working at the Children's Hospital. But I, I think that was the year that made me really want to do something that was worthwhile because I was based down near the oncology ward. That was really, you know, every day you're going to work and you just think, my life is 
not a problem compared to what those people are going through, you know? Yeah. So it was actually a really good year because I learned some fantastic research skills down at the Children's Hospital with some great researchers, but also it taught me about having a bit of humility about life and being grateful for what you've got right. and not really whinging about having to work a bit too hard. Right. Mm. No, that that's so true. It's yeah, when you when you when you uh, it's it's amazing that human beings are engineered in such a way that as soon as you compare yourself to someone who is in a better position to you, it causes you misery. But when you look at someone who's got a way worse than you, you're like, oh, wait, life is pretty good. Yeah, exactly right. Because I spent eight years working at Westmead in my research assistant job. So I've been on the melanoma project and I moved on to a project which looked at high risk um, families who were predisposed to breast cancer Mm. and ovarian cancer. And I was with that project for eight years, but I was in the cancer center at Westmead. And that really taught me that a lot of people have a really hard time. Mm. And um, yeah, it definitely teaches you to value what you've got. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So you did that project and then what happened afterwards? So after I finished my honours, I was continuing to work as a research assistant at Westmead on the breast cancer project, yep. but then I actually started my PhD um, straight after that with Sydney University. And um, I sort of stayed in that genetic epidemiology route, but I actually turned my attention to a cancer called sarcoma. I don't know whether you've heard of it, but it's no. quite a rare cancer. And so normal, well, I shouldn't say normal cancers, but most cancers arise in your um, epithelial tissues, which is like, you know, breast cancer or colon cancer, those sorts of right. tissues, where sarcoma um, arises in connective tissues, so bone, um, tendons, muscle, those mm. sorts of things. And they're often quite lethal cancers mm. um, because they're detected quite late um, and they cause lots of mortality. So quite a few young children get sarcomas. Mm. Um, so why are these cancers uh, more rare than the typical? They're just... They're just a rarer cancer. They just don't occur as frequently. Um, possibly, look, maybe it's because they're in younger children. You know, they tend to occur at a younger age. And cancer's really typically associated with being older. That's why we get lots of breast cancers, right. lots of colorectal cancers, because as your DNA starts breaking down, unfortunately, you become more predisposed to damaged DNA, and that's when cancer arises. So sarcoma is just one of those really, you know, much rarer cancers. But unfortunately, what that means, it's really underfunded. Yeah. And, you know, there's not much research going on around there. Um, So just to make life really difficult for myself, I decided to research sarcoma, but a particular subset of sarcomas where um, these individuals get a genetic mutation or they have a genetic mutation called TP53. And this mutation causes people to get sarcomas, but also really young breast cancers, brain tumors, and lots of different cancers around the body. And what really inspired me to do is because I was working in the cancer care center and specifically in the um, family cancer center, which Mm -hmm. looks at families who have these sort of predisposing genetic mutations. And when people were detected with this mutation, they were kind of written off because everyone said, well, there's nothing we can do. Mm. Um, You're probably going to die of cancer, so on you go, sort of thing. And then sometimes they even refused to test for it because there was kind of no point finding out that you had a TP53 mutation because there was nothing that anybody could do. And so the whole of that community, the family cancer community in, in Australia, was really quite negative about the whole mutation and wouldn't really deal with it. And I felt really bad for these people because I knew a couple of families Mm. from my research work in the breast cancer project so that really inspired me to try and do something to try and make their lives a bit better and so what research questions did you try to answer in your PhD 
So what I tried to answer was, first of all, what was the rate of the TP53 mutations in sarcoma families, mm -hmm. which I did. And then I also tried to find out whether we could actually have a really effective management program that would detect sarcomas, uh, sarcomas and other cancers earlier by you know, using whole body MRI screening so that people didn't really have to have a death sentence so that they could get tested for the genetic mutation mm -hmm. and then there was some management protocol in place so that they weren't just written off. Okay, so, um, so could you tell us what were the rates of people who had TP53 mutations? Yeah, 17% of sarcoma um, index cases that were diagnosed with Peter McCallum Cancer Care Centre in Melbourne had a, a TP53 germline mutation, which is much higher than anybody thought, and no one had really investigated that before. So 70%? 17, 1.7. Oh, 1.7. But it's pretty high because we thought it was something like 0.05% before. Right. And when you, when you say germline mutation, mm. what do you mean by that? Sorry, I should explain, yeah. So a germline mutation is something you're born with, so it's passed on through mother or father, and you've got a 50% chance of inheriting that mutation because you have two strands of DNA, two alleles, and one of those alleles is already broken when you're born, and that's a germline mutation. And so what that means is you've got these two alleles, one's already broken, so it doesn't take too much to actually damage that second allele, right. uh, and that's when cancer occurs. So that's why, for example, with someone with a TP53 mutation, they'll get cancer a lot younger than someone in the average population because they've already got one damaged strand of DNA. Right. And the same thing happens, for example, you may have heard of the um, BRCA mutations that predispose women to getting breast cancer. Right. And that's why they will also get breast cancer earlier because they've already got this broken strand right. in that part of their DNA. So it doesn't take much to hit that second strand and break that or so, damage it. Yeah. So it, 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 it's like it doesn't have a backup plan. So there's there's one copy that's the good copy. Yeah. If that goes wrong, that's it. That's right. Yeah, they'll often end up with cancer and at a much younger age. Okay. And and the second part of your PhD mm. was about screening yeah. and management. That's right because there was no so some work had been done in the US trying to find out whether there was any effective management that, that management that could be done and people have started developing screening protocols around these individuals. So I tried to carry on that work in Australia. So first of all, I had to really convince the family cancer clinics in Australia that we had to do something. And I actually wrote a protocol around cancer screening, and that was pretty cool because it's been adopted now. Mm. Um, and cancer treatments online, it's uh, called EVIQ, it's run by the Cancer Institute. They've actually referenced that work. Wow. Um, and I got a Nature Reviews paper out of that as well. Oh, so beautiful. that was, yeah, I was pretty happy. Awesome. My first publication was a Nature Reviews paper. Wow. Yeah, so that was really good because it's such an interesting field and it can be used as a, uh, I guess, as an example for other cancer syndromes, you know, rare cancer syndromes. But anyway, so once we'd written that protocol, we actually set up a screening program and we invited individuals who'd been diagnosed with TP53 or they had a first degree family member, so maybe their mum or their dad or brother or sister, because it meant that they had a 50% chance of having the mutation as well. We invited them to come and take part in the screening program and they would have a yearly MRI, but also lots of diff other different examinations like skin examinations and... Um, you know, brain scans, the women would have breast MRIs as well to try and see if we could actually pick up the cancers that they were being diagnosed with earlier, but without, we also had to see whether there was high rates of incidental findings. I'm not sure whether you know what that means, no. but basically um, incidental findings, like small things you might find in the MRI that aren't really 
dangerous they might be a little benign gross but they have to be investigated mm. so it's really about balancing finding that cancer early as opposed to finding too many incidental findings okay yeah. so how would you tell the difference between an incidental finding and, and a cancer it can come down to the imaging but often it comes down to biopsy and so that's why it's not the best having lots of incidental findings because you do have to do additional investigations and if you think about it that can make people who are predisposed to cancer are really quite anxious and that was actually my part of the project was looking at how you know does screening make people more anxious because having the genetic mutation makes people anxious anyway mm. but you know having all of those investigations does it make people who are sort of well sick so we're really trying to find out is what was the actual psychosocial impact of this screening and what was the impact of having cancer detected earlier you know did that benefit outweigh having all these incidental findings and the sort of constant monitoring that they were having done right seems like you've done a lot for your phd it was a pretty big phd <laughs> i had three studies in there and it was um pretty hectic but it was it was a great phd and it was a really nice body of work yeah yeah, yeah i mean that seems like a lot of work mm. um okay so very productive PhD coming out of it mm. what did you decide to do well I'd already been quite strategic and this is probably because I've got a business background so I think about this mm -hmm. so during my PhD I actually taught epidemiology at Sydney University mm -hmm. and I also um, studied teaching down here at Western so I was teaching the school of science and health and their evidence-based medicine programs and so once I finished my PhD I'd already sort of positioned myself quite nicely mm. to you know, apply for any academic positions that had come up here. So I was quite lucky. Um, someone went on maternity leave and I got a nine-month maternity contract yes. up in the School of Science and Health. And during that time, it was pretty amazing because it was hard work, but I actually developed a whole online unit, a whole online course for public health. Um, so that was a really awesome experience and really sort of, I guess, added to my CV right. and gave me a chance to actually start doing my own research as well. Because one of the really hard things when you come out from your PhD, if you don't continue on in that research field, you're in a bit of a wasteland as, you know, to what you're going to do. So I was really lucky because I met a group of other amazing early career researchers. And there's four of us who worked together and we sort of banded together to try and build up our track record together. So I was really quite lucky compared to a lot of people who come out from a PhD. Right. So with these uh, four other individuals, mm. you guys were doing research in the field that you, you had researched for, for your PhD? No, it's actually quite different. So the field that I researched my PhD is a very niche field. And as I mentioned earlier, it's really hard to get funding. So unfortunately, I made the decision that I had to move on from there mm. because there wasn't really much scope to take that research further. Possibly in a few years' time, they'll be, you know, I'll be able to do it. But I couldn't really do that here. So I've always been interested in non-communicable disease or cancer. And so the other individuals that I banded with all research different non-communicable diseases. So, mm. for example, Fred McMillan researches diabetes, um, Emma George researches obesity and physical activity and Jen Steiner researches um, Alzheimer's and dementia so we're all looking at you know chronic diseases that affect the population mm -hmm. and so we thought well if we can work together we can probably boost each other's research as well. So how did you work together and what, what we like how did you approach this? So we 
we gave ourselves a name. We called ourselves Epic Research Group because, you know, no no um, egos there whatsoever. That's beautiful. Well, it was actually supposed to be the Epidemiology Collaboration, but we ended up calling ourselves Epic. Epic. You know, we had a few drinks and decided that that was going to be the name because we couldn't come up with anything else. No, that's the, yeah, best, so, the best name you could have come well, up with. Well, it was pretty cool because people started to take notice of us because we just... We um, ran systematic review workshops for medical students and we started doing a couple of systematic reviews, getting the medical students working with us. We applied for some money, um, some funding to get access to data on a, a really big cohort study called the 45 and Up study. And, and this 45 and Up study has got 26,000 individuals that they've collected data on mm. and you can apply to get chunks of data around, you know, diabetes, diagnoses, cancer diagnoses, right. weight, height, all of this sort of stuff. So we just started trying to apply for small pockets of funding so that we'd actually get some projects up and running together. And then actually we applied for maybe, I think it was two or three school science and health partnership grants as well, where we went to external partners like the local primary health networks and got money from them and then put it together with school science and health um, funding so we could seed some of our own projects as well. And we just basically put each other's names and everything so that we were kind of building a track record together. Yeah, no, mm. that's really cool. Mm. What were you guys trying to accomplish? So what projects were you guys trying to advance? Well, I guess I should talk about, well, Jen had one where she was trying to look at the use of complementary therapies in treating early dementia. So things like? Uh, so she was looking at things like um, turmeric and coconut oil and so she's really going out and asking people or we got fortunately we could pay someone to do it for us on the grants so we'd ask people about what sort of complementary medicine you know did they take vitamins what drugs did they take to try and manage their early dementia because it's a really under-researched field like people don't really know there's no evidence around what people are actually taking and Mm. as you probably know there's lots of weird adverts on the internet telling people to take stuff so we're trying to find out what were people actually taking so that was one of the projects another one we was going to say apple cider vinegar yep apple cider vinegar is another one as well so there's heaps of stuff out there but really minimal evidence and it was really cool actually because we asked people around you know why did they take that stuff and no one you know it's just because they read somewhere it's in a blog post but for someone who teaches evidence-based medicine, yeah. it's really concerning that people are just taking stuff. And we actually don't know what the interactions are with the drugs that they're prescribed as well. So it's a, it was a, a really great seeding project, you know, to take Jen's stuff forward. But we also applied for my first grant, which was looking at access to breast screening among really overweight women mm. in Greater Western Sydney. And we did it in partnership with Wentworth Primary Health Network. And we've just actually wrapped up that project. So that was a great project because we spoke to lots of mammographic staff and GPs, but we also spoke to overweight women from uh, Western Sydney about what their perceptions were around breast screening and why they might not go and screen. And the data was fabulous. So that's really funded my next, or it's not funded, but it's informed um, my next research project, which I've just applied for for funding now. Could you talk about that study or is it uh, going to be published? No, no, I'm happy to talk. Okay. I mean, it will be published. Yeah. We're writing the paper at the moment. But basically, there was a real disconnect between the healthcare providers and the women. So the healthcare providers felt that weight was something that shouldn't be discussed and they didn't see it being a problem at all when women came for mammographic screening. But what the women were telling us was that it was a really horrible experience and lots of them had had almost horrific experiences because they had really adverse events like 
splitting of skin underneath her breasts and that sort of thing because they were being kind of manhandled by mammographic staff who didn't really even communicate to them about the fact that they were, you know, really overweight. And also um, lots of really overweight people have, or the women we spoke to had real body shame and didn't want to go and get mammograms because they felt so bad about it. But the worst thing is, is that, or the, the key concern, I guess, is that overweight women are more at risk of breast cancer. Um, after their menopause and they also tend to have worse outcomes as well so it's a bit of a critical issue for us because in greater western sydney about 79 percent of the population are overweight or obese but we've got really low breast screening rates i know it's a huge proportion right so we've got very high proportion of overweight people but we've got one of the lowest proportions of breast screening so to me that's a really you know big concern especially when you take into context that you've got women out there who won't go because either they've had a horrible experience or they just don't want to go because they've heard about people having horrible experiences or they just don't get undressed and that's just really one part of it because if they don't get breast screening what else are they not doing and these individuals actually need to have higher access to healthcare because of all of the other issues like diabetes high blood pressure cardiovascular disease so this is really and being taken on board by the Cancer Institute and the Breast Cancer Institute, they're really interested in this research. And so we've actually now applied to take the research further and try and get a bit more robust data around actually how many overweight women are screened and, and who aren't. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm. It's like the, the, the people who need it the most aren't getting it at all. That's right, so that's right. Too many barriers for them to yeah. overcome. Yeah, and also I think it's quite interesting that um, the healthcare providers like the mammographic staff really don't see this as being an issue at all. Mm. And so it's really trying to get them to maybe improve communication strategies as well. And I think this is a personal opinion, but perhaps we need to start treating weight as a health condition in itself because at the moment no one will talk about it. So it's very much a taboo topic. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. interesting. So, so what would be some mitigation strategies for this issue? I mean, how would you, how would you? Well, I think we need to start thinking about, for example, maybe the equipment that we're using. So, we had some women who'd gone to breast screen vans, and they had to be hoisted up on a wheelchair lift into the van because of their weight. Um, another woman who got stuck in the van. Um, so you could even think about asking people about their weight before you start booking it, them into that environment. Maybe they have to go to the Breast Cancer Institute at Westmead, for example, to get their mm. breast screening. Yeah, We certainly found that there needs to be more communication. So where the mammographic staff thought they were doing the right thing by ignoring the weight, actually it would be better for them to have open discourse about it and actually mm. acknowledge it so that there can be appropriate handling of the women as well. We really need to think about our strategies in terms of making overweight women more, more aware of their risk you know, their increased risk of breast cancer because they're overweight as well. So what we'll probably do next year, so in the meantime, we're actually going to do a project where we're linking some data with breast screen from a big cohort study to actually find out what the real rates of screening are. If hopefully we'll prove that the rates are quite low, we're actually going to try and develop a bunch of community-based interventions. So we'll actually work with the community and try and develop, it's almost something like a peer encourager intervention where we'll get hopefully, you know, women who are a bit more overweight to actually go out in the community and encourage other overweight women to screen Mm. and just try and normalise it as well. But it's going to have to be done in association with the screening services. It's going to be like a twofold approach. Yeah, That's interesting. Okay. Mm. Um, You you mentioned about um, minority groups and Mm. the challenges that they face. Um, Can you talk a bit 
about that. Yeah, for sure. So one of the other projects we've got going at the moment is we're out in the Nepean Blue Mountains region and we're talking to lots of individuals from different culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds about what barriers they may face in terms of getting cancer screening. So not just breast screening, but cervical screening, um, bowel cancer screening and also breast screening because I guess for me, I hate waste. And we have these three amazing free national cancer screening programs that aren't being accessed um, optimally by individuals from those backgrounds. And so some of the barriers that we're finding at the moment is that uh, many of the older individuals don't speak English or don't have you know, good English. And so there's a heavy reliance on either their children or the GPs to actually get them to go screening. Um, but unfortunately, GPs aren't really stepping up to that role. And it's not necessarily the GP's fault. It's really, they're very time constrained. As you probably know, last time you went to the GP, it's, you know, how quickly can we move people through because they're allotted a 15 minute slot. Mm -hmm. And so if you can imagine, it's quite complex anyway with someone who doesn't speak English very well and dealing to their different healthcare needs because there's so many different competing priorities. You know, maybe they've got diabetes or maybe they've got high blood pressure and then trying to fit in that screening advice as well is really quite problematic. So first of all, individuals from cold backgrounds or culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds aren't often aware that they can actually access that, access that free screening. And then there's the language barriers as well. So, you know, they may not be able to speak the language and it's difficult actually trying to get the screening done. And um, there's also um, access issues, so may lack transport, um, definitely low knowledge, that's a real problem as well. I'm trying to think what else we found at the moment because the interviews really are quite ongoing. There are cultural barriers as well and we have spoken to some individuals where it's a real modesty issue. So we might need to think about, so for example, breast screening, that can be quite difficult for you know, women of certain cultural backgrounds mm. and dressing in front of strangers. Right. So we nearly re really need to start thinking about strategies about how we can deal with that as well. And that's really quite important for cervical screening because... No woman likes getting cervical screening done. Not even, you know, English women, Australian women, you know, any woman, you know, really doesn't like getting it done. One of the issues we've got in the Nepean Blue Mountains area is that we have lots of single male GPs. And there's a real problem there. So they're allowed to do cervical screening without chaperone. But lots of women, including myself, don't particularly like getting a cervical screen done with a single male GP. So that's one of the barriers as well, is trying to funnel women down to female GPs and still actually track their screening. It's really complex. It's a huge, huge problem that we've got. So there's quite a few different barriers that exist there that exist for the general population, but mm -hmm. also the, you know, some more culturally specific barriers as well that are quite a problem for us. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's interesting because my, my dad's about 75 and mm. they, they um, he receives letters every couple of years to go get his... Um, uh, feces checked for yep. colon cancer. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's he's very diligent about it. Cause, oh, good. Yeah, because he's he's very. But I, I can imagine a lot of people just throwing away that letter. Yeah, I think for many individuals, they don't understand why early detection is important, and that's one of the barriers we've come up against. And you know, it's often surprising to me because I know that if you can detect cancer earlier. You're going to have less treatment and there's much more chance of having a longer-term survival. But lots of people don't understand that. But then there's also those cultural barriers, barriers around some people don't want to keep feces in the fridge, you know, and that's really <laughs> what it comes down to. Like, a lot of people feel really funny about it. And again, that's not just a culturally specific thing. I know my mother-in-law, for example, refuses to do this test. Yeah. So it's really trying to find out ways that make this test 
you know, more, I guess, acceptable to people, but also just trying to break down those myths and trying to break down the misunderstandings so that everyone understands why you're actually getting it done. Because I genuinely believe if you can get people to understand in their own language, on their level, why we're doing the cancer screening and that it's free, yeah. you know, and that it can have a benefit to them, yeah. then, you know, to me, that would be pretty amazing. And then thinking about the long-term health costs as well, our economy, health economy is really getting brutalised by chronic disease and by non-communicable diseases because we do have such a, you know, a, a growing ageing population. So if we can save money let's say, for example, on cancer treatments, because if you think about it, if you can get some with early-stage colon cancer, it might be a surgical intervention with a minimal amount of chemotherapy, mm. and then they will have the same life prospects as anybody else. Mm. But if someone delays that early detection, then they're actually found at the stage where they're symptomatic. That has a massive difference in how much treatment they'll have to have, but also their mortality outlook too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, mm. prevention is way better than the cure. Yeah. Um, well, I don't forget we can't prevent we cancer. We can't prevent. Yeah. But if we can detect early, that makes a that huge makes, difference. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I didn't consider how much the, the cost of actually treating people uh, would be. That, mm. that would be a big issue. In, in saying that, I mean, then are governments like funding this type of research? Are they really excited about? Because you mentioned that it was difficult to get research. Oh. Or, or funding for the earlier project yeah. that you mentioned, but that was that because it was just a, a, a niche uh, population and it's yeah. not really applicable to the general public and that's why it's difficult, whereas what you're doing now is, is uh, you know, there's, there's greater numbers involved and so is there more mm. funding for, for research like that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's really difficult when you work in niche areas to get funding and so you kind of do have to be a bit strategic about which way you're going with your research. And, you know, hands up, I'll admit, I've been really quite strategic about the direction I've taken my research. Um, it's much easier to get funders interested in what you're doing if it actually meets their KPIs. So, for example, What's you know, their KPI? performance indicators. Okay. So, for example, I'm working or have worked with Wentwest Primary Health Network and they look after all of the general practitioners in Western Sydney. I work with Nepean and Blue Mountains Primary Health Network. Um, Southwest Sydney Primary Health Network because if you can identify what their um, performance indicators are you can work with them and you can do research with them and a lot of their remit is to actually fund research to try and improve issues within their area mm -hmm. so it is if you think about what are the priorities I mean anybody can go into the Cancer Institute's web page and look at what their research priorities are so it's really thinking about how can I fit my research in with that but not duplicate somebody else's research right mm. so it's just aligning your research with, with their research absolutely interests. you know because unfortunately in this academic environment you have to bring in grant money I mean that's really part of our performance as well and so I think if you can focus your research in areas where there is a research need for one it makes your job more secure but two you're actually meeting a need as well yeah. why wouldn't you do that I don't know mm. yeah that makes sense uh, yeah I recognize that when I was applying for a PhD yeah. yeah and they're like oh these are the research streams and I'm like well I don't know if mine fits in any of these yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can always mould it into something yeah, yeah exactly it's yeah. like let yeah. me just yeah, try to force it into mm. this hole over here that's right it's got to be done yeah it's, you, you have to do it and it makes sense I mean you don't there's value to doing basic research you mm -hmm. know just advancing our understanding of fundamental things that's right but if you don't make obvious the utility of that, mm. then, then you can't really expect people to get excited about it. That's right. And 
look, there is a, quite a big um, shift happening in research at the moment because you have to think about impact. So it's not necessarily about how many publications you can get. Um, it's really about real-world impact. So we're being encouraged now as researchers to think about, well, how is this going to impact the local community? How is it going to impact international research? Mm. How is it going to impact on my stakeholders and my partners? And it's actually, for me, I like it. I'm a very pragmatic person. Mm. Why wouldn't you do research? I know we don't all have the choice. Don't mm. get me wrong. I'm a population health researcher. So I do have opportunities to have impact in my research. But I don't understand why people don't think of that. So to me, it's a really logical step to think about what actual real-life impact our research is going to have. Because for me, if I can increase cancer screening rates in Greater Western Sydney, that's amazing because we do have an issue with it. Yeah, mm. and, and you're affecting people's lives, which is awesome. Exactly right, yeah. Because it's not just about healthcare costs as well with cancer. Right. It's also about, if you think about the individual quality of life costs, if someone's got to have really intensive treatment, that has a much bigger effect on their life than having you know, much shorter course of treatment or just simple surgery. Yeah, no, mm. definitely. Um, okay, um, I suppose what, what we can talk about, so we mentioned a few of your projects. Do you have any that we haven't spoken about? Mm. Probably one project that I don't own the project, but I am a, one of the chief investigators on, and that's a diabetes prevention project with mm. the Samoan community in southwest Sydney. Right, this is the one with, that we kind of talked about at the research that's showcase. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I was presenting my PhD student's <laughs> poster because she was doing some work for me that day. But this is an amazing project. So this is actually being run by Freya McMillan, who's one of the early career researchers who I spoke about earlier. And um, we're working with Professor David Simmons. So he's a professor in diabetes and endocrinology at Western Sydney Uni. And he also runs a diabetes service at Cameltown Hospital. So this project is superb because what it is, it's a community-based research project where we go out into the community and we recruit volunteers from the community to implement or to deliver a lifestyle intervention project because the trouble with the Samoan community is that they have really high rates of diabetes but also really high rates of risk factors for diabetes like increased weight, um, not great diets, you know, eating too much food and, and minimal, minimal physical activity just because of, you know, the culture and, and, and the way that you know, they, they sort of brought their lives across in Samoa and it's difficult because back there they had agriculture and farming and, lot, you know, m much more physical lifestyles, whereas here they're stuck in that more same lifestyle that everyone right. else is, yeah. Oh. So this project's really cool because we've actually got a Samoan community coach who we employ, uh, Rhonda, she's amazing. So she's actually trained a whole bunch of um, peer supporters, we call them, in a group of churches across southwest Sydney to actually deliver this intervention. And so there's a whole series of workshops that have been running for the past few months, um, workshops around increasing your steps, increasing your physical activity, drinking more water, introducing fibre into your diet, eating more fruits and veggies. So really, really simple mm. lifestyle messages. But it's just been incredible. I wish you'd been at... Um, the health showcase at Research Week a couple of weeks ago, so you know the same week I met you. The day before, we had one of the peer supporters from the local church at Minto. She presented to a whole bunch of stakeholders and researchers in the university. And I think she brought half of the audience to tears because she said about how um, everyone in their church has lost lots of weight. A visitor came to the church and they commented on how healthy everyone was looking and it's just really changed the whole mentality of the church they've changed the food that they eat they've changed the activities wow. they do so it's just had a massive impact 
And that's what I'm talking about with impact. Like that's had real life impact on that church. And that's just one of four churches where we've been running this project. So it's just been superb. And it's so rewarding when, you know, someone's standing there saying thanks so much to the doctors and professors at Western Sydney University because you've changed our lives. So that is an awesome project. And we're hoping that will actually scale up next year. Mm. And we're hoping to get funding from the NHMRC to actually scale up to lots more churches across Western Sydney. So that's... A pretty cool project. Yeah, that, I'm really lucky to be involved in that. That is a, a very cool project. Mm. What I like is the, sim- the, the the simplicity in the approach. That's right. And also getting the community involved. So this project actually took probably about 18 months to get underway because we actually had a... We've got a reference group where, you know, there's members of the Samoan community, the High Commissioner uh, from Canberra, um, GPs, lots of really important people, but also regular community members. Mm. And so we meet with them every three months. And we actually work with them to develop the project and to make sure that it was appropriate and that it was being delivered at the right level to the community. So that's been probably one of the best things is that the community had ownership of the whole project mm. at the very beginning. Right. But it is simple. It's it's a really yeah. cool project. Yeah, it, And ownership would be very important. Absolutely. Um, because then they'll be motivated to actually do it. That's right, that's right. And so all of our research now, so even the work we're doing with breast screening and with the culturally and linguistically diverse communities in cancer screening, even though it seems as though we're just talking to people to see what the barriers are, this is actually the engagement stage where we're trying to meet different members of the community so that as the research moves forward, we can actually engage that community in helping us either deliver the intervention, help us d- develop the intervention so that there is a sense of ownership mm. because there's lots of research out there now that shows you if there's community ownership, it's it's you know much more effective. Yeah, For, for sure. This reminds me, this is totally unrelated, but have you heard of the pygmy population? Um, in, in, in Africa? Yeah, I studied anthropology, right? Oh, I remember. Damn, I forgot. <laughs> Look, you've, done, you've lived like 50 different lives. So yeah, I have. I've had, a, <laughs> I I've had an track. interesting life. And I'm, I'm only just in my 40s. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't it usual these days that everyone changes things up a bit through their lives? I, I think they say that, you know, previously people would stick to one career. I think there's mm. like people expect like three or four different careers yeah. in one lifetime. Yeah, it's good to have different careers. Yeah, it keeps mm. it exciting. Well, it also gives you different experiences that, you know, not necessarily everyone has in your chosen field. So for me, for example, I'm quite lucky because I have a lot of management and leadership experience, which mm. is fantastic when it comes to research. For sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I could, yeah, definitely I could yeah. see the utility of that. Yeah. Tell me about the pygmy population, the pygmy though. <laughs> <laughs> this is going back a few years now. So there's a, there's a gentleman called Justin Wren, I mm. believe that's his name. He's a UFC fighter. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the... I, I'm familiar with UFC, yeah, okay. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I get forced to watch it. What's your background, by the way? Are you English. Um, English. Oh, English. I do have Irish parents, but I'm, I was born in England, okay. yeah. Who forces you to watch the UFC? My partner. Oh, mm. yeah. he's a big fan. Yeah, I really hate fighting and violence of any sort, but the UFC, I must admit, is quite interesting. And I did watch the... Um, was it the Merriweather fight oh, May- against? Yeah, that was Mayweather. That's it. Yeah. That was quite a good fight. Against yeah. Conor McGregor. Yeah. It was a phenomenal fight. It was, it was pretty good. Very exciting. Mm. Plus, they made like $100 million. I know. Plus. But McGregor did die yeah. quite early in the piece. But anyway. Yeah. But yeah. I, look, I would have done that to make $100 million. For sure. <laughs> Beat me to death. That's fine. Well, stop short of death, but give me $100 million. <laughs> yeah. Do whatever you want to do. Exactly yeah. right, you know. Mm. Um uh, but yeah, this gentleman, Justin Wren, he's, mm. he's a UFC fighter. Okay. And I think he went on a trip to um, 
to the Congo. I think that's where the pygmies live, I believe. Don't, yeah. don't quote Somewhere around there. Somewhere I around. think I might have a book on the shelf behind oh. me that's somewhere about the pygmies. Yeah. <laughs> we can open up the book and get the facts right. Yeah. Um, but let me just murder it the facts over here don't we, i can't remember them this is a long time ago okay, that i studied good. the pygmies yeah then these are gonna go unchecked mm. um, um but essentially when he went there i think the pygmies were treated as essential s- slaves they were like subhuman to the other um african populations mm. around or african tribes um and he he was uh he, he really built an emotional attachment with them because he was trying to help them um and he dedicated his whole life to actually building wells mm. to, to help them okay. um, have access to clean water. Because mm. I think some crazy amount of, like, I think 5,000 children um, die from 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 mm. uh, dirty water. Yeah, it's pretty awful. It's a bad situation over there. I think it may be a day or a year. Don't, mm. the, the, it, it's, it, I feel like it's a lot. I'm yeah. not sure whether it's, I think it's more than 5,000 a year, let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the case may be, it's still tragic mm. whether it's a day or a year. Um, but yeah, he, he started a whole uh, charity essentially where he, he goes to Africa mm. and he doesn't just build wells. He actually trains the locals, the pygmy population. Okay. And, and they are doing it in a very analogous to what you're doing here uh, um, with the Samoan community. Mm. They're using very basic tools, mm-hmm. e- equipping the population with the necessary knowledge and skill. That's right. So that when he leaves they can still build their own wells, repair it, yep. maintain it, and gives them an ownership of, of what they're doing. It does, but it also gives sustainability, yeah. which is super crucial because, unfortunately, in our economic climate, lots of money is spent on being reactive with health conditions, so treating health conditions, whereas there's only a very small proportion. I think it's like 8 or 9% of the whole health budget that's actually spent on prevention. Mm. So it's really, really important that we actually make any intervention sustainable so that you know we can go in and work with the community, then we can step away as researchers, and there's continuing benefits in the community. Mm. Yeah, that is important. Mm. Um, yeah, so I thought that... Yeah, no, it's, it, 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 that's exactly what we're aiming for, and it is an analogous situation. Yeah. You know, we, that's what we're really trying to do effectively, so it's quite a nice sum up really cool. of what we're trying to do, yeah. Um, we're kind of reaching towards the end of this That's okay. <laughs> so, so I just want I feel like I've been grilled. I'm like, okay, trying what? to remember my PhD. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Didn't mean to grill you, Kate. As soon as I shut that thesis, that's it, done. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess there's really three questions that I have left. Mm-hmm. The first one, um, what advice could you pass on to students or scientists coming up or researchers mm. coming up? I would have to say be strategic. Uh, you know, it's really important to be passionate about your research field. And, you know, you've, that's probably the first bit of advice, I guess. Be passionate and enjoy what you do. You have to feel something for the field that you're working in, but also try and tie that into strategy you know, it is important to be passionate, but it's also important to be realistic as well. So if mm. you can find a research field that actually ties those two things together, you're, you know, you're going to be successful. So when you say realistic and be mm. strategic, as in make sure whatever you're doing is going to um, be useful for your career to advancing. Yeah, not necessarily useful for advancing your own career, but useful to other people. So, right. you know, if you're interested in cancer research look at the cancer institute see what their priorities are or Mm. you know if you're interested in multiple sclerosis whichever condition it is 
look to see what research has been done, what hasn't been done, and what people's priorities are, because that can really help mm. with funding, because we all need funding, unfortunately, to do research. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, okay, I lied when I said I had three questions. <laughs> <laughs> I have one more, okay. and then I'll ask the last two. Um, for students who might be interested in working with you, mm. um, do you have any projects that you can offer them or that you can briefly discuss? Yeah, so we've probably got a number of projects. So I'm always really happy, first of all, if students come to me with any ideas around access to healthcare in, in disadvantaged or marginalised populations. So, for example, I've had a couple of PhD students apply to work with me next year. Um, one of them is going to be looking at um, patterns of cancer care in uh, coal communities in southwest Sydney. So we're getting quite specific about the areas we're looking at now as well, mm. just because of the different health services that are offered. Um, another student's going to be looking at the health experiences of the South American um, migrant community as well. So anything like that, I'm always really happy to talk about. I do have projects that I have set up for students as well. So I've got a number of projects where, you know, different lengths of time. And I guess the key projects next year are these um, projects that are building on the work we've done with the overweight women. Mm. So we've got a project where we're developing, so based on the work we've just done, we've, we're developing a questionnaire. So I've got a summer scholar coming mm. in a couple of weeks and she's going to be developing a questionnaire which will be asking questions around body image and experience of screening and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So once that questionnaire has actually been developed next year, um, there's an honours project sitting there for whoever wants to take it mm. to actually administer that questionnaire to a few hundred women across Greater Western Sydney. And then I'll also be doing a pretty complex epidemiological study where I'm linking this data between the Cancer Institute data and also the Australian Longitudinal Women's Health Study, mm -hmm. um, which will look at fluctuations in weight and how that affects screening. So there's scope to work on that project too. But we always have heaps of stuff to work on. You know, like the Simone project, there's always space to have people come and do, you know, small projects in mm -hmm. there because um, Freya, McMillan and I actually work really closely together on all of our projects mm -hmm. and we're really happy to have students coming in and having chunks of data and analyzing it for themselves because it's really great for us to train people mm. on our projects and then it's really good if they come back and do masters and phds <laughs> with us but we're pretty generous with our yeah. data because it's great when you've got a a, a good research team yeah, yeah. Definitely. so heaps of scope awesome yeah. so if you're considering definitely hit kate up yeah for sure yeah. come <laughs> we, we love students here i think i've got Two groups of community research students coming from the medical school, and we've got beautiful. two summer scholars coming, so we're really happy to have students down here, yeah. Nice, beautiful. Mm. Okay, last two questions. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and I'll just phrase it as one question. I, I mm. suppose we could start with, what are some things that keep you up at night when you look into the future? And mm. on the flip side of that, what are some things that... Um, get you excited in the morning and, and, and give you hope when you look into the future? It's probably two sides of the same coin, I'd say, because some of the things that keep me up at night are, I have, I think like a lot of hopefully aware researchers, I have an imposter syndrome where I really worry about what am I doing here? Can I do my research? There's people investing in me. Am I going to get everything done? Oh God, we recruited enough people for that project. So I do, you know, I really worry about the practical aspects of research and, but that's actually probably a good thing because I do get excited about coming to work because I love challenges and mm. I love being busy. So that's probably one of the things that not only keeps me awake at night, but also, you know, gets me up in the morning, gets me motivated to come to work. But I guess for me, what always keeps me awake at night is just work. <laughs> 
<laughs> because we're so busy and we get so overloaded because, you know, if you're an academic, don't be mistaken, I'm sure you've spoken to many academics, it's challenging because you're always trying to balance, you know, mm. teaching. And I worry about students who maybe aren't doing as well as they should and then there's marking and there's just heaps of stuff to do. But then you've really got to, as an early career research, you've actually got to try and balance it and get your research in there as well because it's all about looking towards the future and trying to actually cement your position. So that definitely keeps me up at night. But I am getting better mm. at trying not to think about it at night. Probably helps not work in the evenings now, which I've tried to cull <laughs> a little bit. But um, And I think the thing that gets me excited the most is actually considering that I might be able to make real life impact so that does get me excited and when we the last few weeks we've been going out and talking to groups in the Pea and Blue Mountains so you know groups of uh, culturally and linguistically diverse individuals just mixed groups and that's been really awesome because they've been so excited to speak to us and happy to you know welcome us to their groups and to me that's what really gets me excited because I feel like we're actually doing something right. and that we might actually make a difference to people which you know, to me, is the most important thing, that, definitely, yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Mm. I think contribution is a big part of being happy. Yeah. And if you don't, it's like, a, 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 I always think, you know, there's different avenues to um, accessing happiness and fulfillment, yeah. you know, and a big one is, is contribution. And it's so great to see that mm. your line of work, you know, that enables you to access that, which is yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm so lucky, actually, that I do get to do it and. I'm just so grateful I get a chance to do this sort of research. It's pretty amazing. I'm a pretty lucky person, yeah. Yeah, cool. Mm. Okay, we'll call it a day. Thank cool. you so much for Thank being on the you. podcast. It's a pleasure. Hopefully it's been interesting. Oh, it has, yeah, <laughs>